honor the directions, the north and the south, the east and the west, the above, the below, and the within. And also to get a sense of the horizon in which you find yourself, where the sun is right now. The moon was new this morning, so probably none of us are seeing it yet. But just to get that sense of where it is relative to the space that we occupy, because we're not all together in the same space. So we kind of have to create this shared environment virtually, but also to bring presence into where we are individually. And then um, also to think about the, the circling stars, uh, the path that the planets follow around the earth and to just kind of feel that embrace, which has kind of the, the, the mood of destiny about it. And this moment that we are, this time that we're going to share together to honor the moon and its relationship to the earth and to the planets and the stars. And as we think of that, I also want us to think of loved ones who might be facing challenges or who have perhaps already crossed the threshold. Um, anybody that could use our conscious awareness of them. And then I'm going to light a candle while we all do that. Okay, and then I'm going to start sharing my screen. All right, so as um, Cindy and Cynthia shared, this is new moon and harvest new beginnings, harvest and new beginnings with the new moon today. Bear with me. And for those of you that don't know, the organization that is sponsoring this is Starry Skies Lake Superior. Um, for some reason, Cindy, I'm having the same issue with trying to advance my slides as I did when we were practicing. Okay. So I don't know what that is. Bear with me, everybody. Um, while we try to sort that out, I am going to just share that um, some of the information that I'm going to be sharing tonight could be considered uh, mystery wisdom. And when I speak about mystery wisdom, it's not that it's just uh, like we have to be detectives and go to find it, but it's actually rooted historically in something that comes to us from ancient cultures and then through almost every age of humanity. And just to give it context, I'd like to point out a few of the mystery schools and a few of the mystery experiences that have happened for humanity. I'm not really going to um, unpack each one of these, but just to point at something that hopefully will be familiar to everybody enough so that we can have context. Um, I'm trying to double task here. So bear with me while I get my... Because I'm excited I had this little mechanism that I could use to advance the screen, but it's not working. Oh, let's see. Okay, Cindy, I'm going to try again, but it looks like I'm a little bit stuck. Okay, I'll do it that way. All right, so again, for Starry Skies Lake Superior and Celebrate, I put Night Sky Week, but now I hear from you that it's an entire month, and I'm really happy about that because a week is hardly enough to celebrate the night sky. But I would also like to dedicate tonight's talk to Robbie Lapp, who is sponsoring this and shared her wonderful, wonderful words about how significant is, it is for us as human beings on the earth to contemplate our celestial companions. 
And so the mystery wisdom that I would like to give context for our, the talk tonight begins with ancient Egypt and the mysteries of Osiris. And we see in ancient Egyptian culture that there's an expression of a sense that the human being recognizes, recognizing having fallen as though from the divine celestial spiritual world toward the earth. And with Osiris, we have this being that represents eventually the God of the dead. And so this is something that, that human beings in that epoch of time are becoming aware of. And then advancing to the ancient Greek culture, we can take as an example, this uh, mystery school at Eleusis, where now we have through the mystery rite that was celebrated there, um, this union of Zeus and Demeter as the father God or the universal God with the earth mother. And the fruit of their union is Persephone or Proserpine, and she is, as though entrapped in the underworld. So these mystery streams are giving expression to this idea that the human being originates among the stars and falls toward the earth and then is somehow captured in that material realm and in that material sphere. And then we come to the mystery of Golgotha at the beginning of the Christian era. And now there is this mystery of overcoming the death experience through a brotherhood of humanity and a sisterhood of humanity. Individuals recognizing their the sacredness of being an individual in relationship with one another and also with the environment. And so in each one of these mystery streams, we can see something developing in the human relationship, not only to what it is to be a human being, but a human being on the earth out of the idea that we don't originate here, but that we originate from the stars. And so this is the way, as a star lore historian, I have done my investigation and research about what is our relationship now here in the 21st century. Not to um, discount contemporary astronomy, but also not to discount the ideas of the ancients that had very well developed ideas about the human being and the evolution of being human and had established not only ceremonial rite, but entire civilizations based on they're striving to understand this relationship to the sky around us. So out of that, we're going to take a journey. All right. Oh, so I'm, I'm hoping we're going to take a journey. I might have to just talk at us instead of showing you any fancy pictures. Okay. So I want to start with this um, poem from E.E. E. Cummings. And it's you are whatever a moon has always meant and whatever the sun will always sing is you. And this is just a fragment of a really lovely poem, but I think it strikes the right mood for where we're going to go tonight. And this is the, uh, the moon is not yet, well, it's probably about 12 hours old right now. So it's still close enough to the sun that we aren't seeing it, but this was the last new moon of the summer. And so again, when we look in the ancient Egyptian culture, we have oftentimes seen depicted this image of the goddess, it's Hathor, it's Isis, it's um, usually described as this divine feminine, which had a relationship to starry worlds. And she at one time was depicted with a starry crown, but eventually that crown was removed and replaced with the cow's horns. And oftentimes this disc that sits within the cow's horns is regarded as the disc of the sun. I'm going to offer up another idea, not to reinterpret what um, the scholars and the researchers of ancient Egyptian culture have to say about this imagery, but to just kind of tease out an idea that it might in fact be, have something to do with the moon. 
Um, when we get to the Renaissance, we have this sketch by Leonardo da Vinci that has a great mystery that he's sketching there. It's not just looking at earth shine on that portion of the moon that isn't illuminated by the sun during its crescent phase, um, but we're going to come to that. And then also a picture from right here in the 21st century of what it looks like when the moon is at its first crescent. So this is something that we'll start to see probably as early as tomorrow night after sunset looking in the west. The crescent moon will start to appear and we'll see the light of it when we're in the northern hemisphere, the light of it will first start to appear on the right side of it. And if the conditions are right, we can see all of the moon, but only the side of it is illuminated. So we have this crescent phase that's almost like a chalice. And then the unillumined part of the moon seems to kind of sit in it, like it's a host there. So it's a very sacred time. And this always indicated uh, the timing of it was really significant for establishing the festival celebration. Um, this particular moon uh, this year in the Jewish tradition is the moon that will inaugurate the um, the civic ceremony of Rosh Hashanah, which I believe begins tomorrow on the 18th. So it's kind of tied to the first visibility of the moon. All right, but so um, in each of these cultures, there was an experience of elemental forces in the world. And again, out of this idea that that which comes to life on the earth is coming from the celestial world, it, the ancient Babylonians, the ancient Egyptians, then handing this off to the Greeks who shared this star knowledge with the Arabic people, and then eventually it makes its way west, and we still have most of our star names coming from Arabic culture here in the western world. Um, this idea develops out of a relationship to the stars of the zodiac. So what I have here is the symbols of the zodiac, but they're not organized according to how they move through the cycle of the year. They're organized rather according to element. So the fire element. So the stars and the constellations that are regarded as those that are governed by the fiery element are Aries, Leo, and Sagittarius. And then those that are governed by the earth element, Capricorn, Taurus, Virgo, the air element is Libra, Aquarius, and Gemini. Oftentimes people will think because Aquarius is described as the water man that it's the water element, but actually Aquarius is, is the air element. And then we have water, Cancer, Scorpio, and Pisces. And so an ancient astrologer would use not only the region of the zodiac where a planet or the moon or the sun would be to interpret the biography of an individual, but would also look at the presence of these particular elements. And these elements were considered divine forces that worked through the natural world and had an effect in engaging with how the human being experienced that world. And even without my in interpreting each one, you can imagine that the fire element has quite a different quality than the water element. Um, when we look at ancient Greek culture, we have, as you can imagine, the god of the fire element is Zeus. He's god of thunder and of lightning. So he has this very strong, he's the, he's the king of the Olympians. Um, and so the fire element has that quality. And you could liken the earth element to Hades, Pluto, who's god of the underworld and has this relationship to the mineral kingdom and to things that are fixed and are formed and don't move as quickly as fire might. They're very, uh, you could say, stubborn. They, they, they hold the space. And then we have, in addition to the fire and to the earth element, we have the water element with Poseidon. Now this is the triumvirate in the Greek mythology. These are the three that really are, they have divided up the worlds between them. There is a fourth element, air, but the god of the air, 
um, Boreas. He's not regarded as one of the main three gods. Nonetheless, there is a divine being for the ancient Greek culture that stands behind this elemental world. And so this was at a time when looking into the natural environment, it wasn't just about trying to measure the forces or to explain them through things like inertia or gravitational force, but rather to look at what was our relationship with the living beings that lived in these elements and what was the consequence of human behavior in that world and how the beings of those worlds would show us to ourselves. And so there was a certain sense that the human being wasn't as free as we are now. Nonetheless, there was a relationship toward the earth as though it was a sacred living being. And so it's quite a bit different than the experience that we have now. Now then we get to the Renaissance and we come to a gentleman by the name of Paracelsus, who was a Swiss physician, he was an alchemist, he was a theologian and a philosopher. And it seems to be that he's the first one that really starts to talk about the four classical elements, earth, water, air, and fire, as though they are inhabited by different beings. And so now the mighty god of thunder and lightning, which is Zeus, is no longer this, this uh, God, it's kind of come more personal and more intimate in the experience of the human being, and it's described as the salamander. This is the fire spirit. And there are the gnomes, which are the earth spirits, the undines, which are the spirits of the water, and the sylphs, which are the spirits of the air. And so it takes on a much more, you could say, um, I don't want to say personal quality, but a more intimate quality. It's not this divine, mighty divine being that's out there inhabiting the celestial environment, but these are the beings that actually are engaged on the earth and have activity that has consequence in human life. But as Paracelsus said, that human beings are mostly incapable of, incapable of understanding the working of these beings because we're too distracted by the grosser elements. We see the earth, we see the water, we see the fire, but we don't see the beings that are actually working through those elements into human life. So this is coming from ancient cultures and all the way up at least until the time of the Renaissance, where it was believed that in order to live harmoniously in the earth environment, one had to establish a rhythmic relationship with the seasons and the cycle of the year and with these forces of nature. And there would be an actual um, awake engagement with, with these beings. And a lot of it seems to us like it's just fantasy, it's folk tales, it's folklore, um, but this was very real. There was a very real, practice in humanity at the time to engage with these beings and to interpret the phenomena that were ha was happening in nature as a sign from the natural world, either that things were working harmoniously or that something had gotten out of harmony. Because these elemental beings are regarded as beings that reflect the human being to themselves. Like we, we can see ourselves in the way nat nature responds to us. And when we get to the 20th century, come to this, the wonderful work of Dr. Ida Wegmann, who was a colleague of Rudolf Steiner, working at the beginning of the 20th century. And she made this statement over 100 years, uh, yeah, 100 years ago. Nature is becoming a mirror of chaotic human behavior, as is evident in catastrophes and anomalies that we, per we perceive them in nature's mirror without recognizing them as our own reflection. So this idea seems to be coming out of this same sense that there is a force operating in nature that we aren't necessarily paying attention to and that it's not 
operating chaotically and we're a victim subject to it, but that we have something to do with it. Our feelings about ourselves, about one another, about our relationships in the world has a lot to do with what's happening in the natural world. And to give it context for what might have been described in the Middle Ages, that you could say the elemental kingdom is looking toward the human kingdom to say, what is it that you have to offer? And if we have nothing to offer, they kind of get ravenous in their appetite. And you could say they turn into giants and we get these giant storms. We get giant hurricanes and giant fires and giant sweeps and events that take place. And I'm not trying to um, trivialize the very devastating events that are happening on the earth right now, but to give it context for this idea that there are forces working in nature and that in the in prior ages it was regarded as the necessity of the human being to actually engage with these beings so what i'm going to do tonight is take us on a storytelling journey through an imagination about how one could engage with this now all right so we begin with the story of rumpelstiltskin so by the side of a wood in a country a long way off ran a fine stream Upon the stream there stood a mill, and the miller's house was close by, and the miller, you must know, had a very beautiful daughter. So this is the story Rumpelstiltskin that comes from the Brothers Grimm. And in this story, what happens is the miller takes his beautiful daughter to the king and offers her as his wife and says, well, she can spin straw into gold, which of course she can't do, but he's convinced that once the king sees her, she's so beautiful that he'll fall in love. And so she's set in a room with this with all this straw and she knows not what to do. So there she is crying about this task that she's given that's basically impossible. And this little gnomish figure shows up and says, well, I can do this for you very easily, but what will you give me? So first she trades her ring and the second night she trades her necklace. And then the third night she has nothing else to give. And so the gnome says, that's okay. When you become queen, you must promise me your firstborn. And she thinks to herself, I'll never be queen so I can go ahead and promise that and there will be no risk. But of course, because the little gnomish figure is able to spin all of the straw into gold and the king sees this, he chooses the miller's daughter as his wife. They get married, they're happy, they have a child. And then this gnome shows up and says, you have to give me my due. All right, so part of what's living behind this fairy tale is that there is this mystery of how is it that we use Earth's resources and turn them into money? And what happens when we don't honor the, you could even just call them growth, growth forces that are at work with the Earth and we just are turning it into money? What are we giving back to the Earth and to earthly forces? So this is a tale about that. And so what happens, of course, at the end is that the queen is able to send her um, some of her guards out into the night and they, they find this little gnome dancing around a fire after the, the first night he comes back and he says, I, I won't take your child if you can tell me my name. And she can't name him. So not being able to name the elemental force that allows us to use Earth's resources has consequence. And so he says, well, I'll, she begs him for another chance. He comes the second night. She still doesn't know his name. But finally, the third night, her guards have been able to spy him out and they, they are able to tell her that his name is Rumpelstiltskin. And so being able to identify and name that force is what kind of frees this hold on her that he has. But it's also really important that he points out to her that you know she offers him all the king all the gold in the kingdom and he says no 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 something living is far more valuable than 
all the gold and all the riches. And so what's happening in this exchange between the human being and the elemental world is that recognizing our relationships to the living world are far more important than anything we could profit, any gain we could make or any profit we could make by using it without recognizing these forces that are at play. So of course, you know, she gets to live happily ever after. But so Rumpelstiltskin is this really wonderful tale to tell at this time of year when we're trying to understand what's happening in the elemental world and does it, and with this question, does it have anything to do with the, the storms and the fires and the experiences that we're having? Because the earth experience is definitely intensifying. I think we can all agree that 2020 has been superlative in terms of the experiences we've had. They've been top of the charts ex extreme with everything. And so trying to find the way to create harmonious relationship is part of what I think the wisdom of fairy tales is because there's always this exchange that takes place where the human being exhibits an ingenuity that can kind of break the spell. All right, so the next one has to do with a probably less known fairy tale that comes also um, out of the German region and it's called Rupetzal. And Rupetzal is a, a, a gnome that is like the king of a mountain. And he spends all of his time there with his gnomish servants. And they have these tasks of holding back the vaporous heat from the, the inner reaches of the earth. And they, they gather up all of the, the rocks and the diamonds and the rubies, and they put them in the nooks and the crannies because Rupetzal loves all beautiful things. But he also, occasionally, every century or so, he will go to the top of his mountain to find out what's going on there. And he sees that there's human beings there that are cultivating the land and building homes and they never really ask his permission, but he's okay with that so long as they treat one another well. And sure enough, he falls in love with a princess, but she doesn't really return his favor, although he's able to enchant her and take her into his underworld kingdom and offer her all of these beautiful things that he's gathered. And he sees that she gets very sad. And, and when he asks her about this, she says, well, I miss all of my playmates. And he says, well, here he's gathered up all of the root vegetables. So it's all the things that are in the earth. So the gnomes have to do with the earth element. And he gives her his wand. And he says, if you just tap these root vegetables with this wand, then you can turn all of these little vegetables into your best friends and your playmates. And so she's able to do this, but eventually these root vegetables wither. And it's as though she's losing all of her friends. And so this just isn't going to do. But not only that, she's in love with a prince that's in the upper world. So she has to mastermind a way to get out of Rupetzal's kingdom. This image right here was created by my sister, Patricia DeLisa, for a calendar that we did a few years ago called Fairy Tale Moons. And that's Rupetzal down there on the, on the bottom left. He's kind of marching across the top of his mountain to see where the human beings have cultivated the land there on his face, which he's okay with that, providing, again, that they have harmonious relationships with one another. And then the third tale that I think is really important for this time of year is called East of the Sun and West of the Moon. This is all going to come together in just a moment, so just bear with me. Um, so East of the Sun, West of the Moon is another tale where there's um, this experience of the elemental kingdom, and what happens is that there's a, a family that once long ago, there lived a husband and his wife and their seven children. They had not enough food to eat and their clothes were patched and worn because they were very poor. And one night a knock comes on their door. And when the father opens the door, there stands a white bear. And the bear says to him, would you like to be as rich as you are now poor? And of course, the, the father says, yes. And he says, in that case, you must give me your youngest daughter. 
Well, of course, the whole family wants her to go, but she doesn't want to. She'd just as soon stay with her family. Nonetheless, they prevail upon her. So when the bear comes back a week later, she's all ready to go. And she goes with him to his mountain kingdom. And she has everything that she could possibly need. She lives in a beautiful palace. She has a beautiful, well-appointed bedroom. But there's a stone slab that's in the corner of the room. And every night, as she's just about to fall asleep, the door opens and the bear walks in. And she sees him go over to the stone slab in the corner. And as though in a twinkling of starlight, he sheds his bear skin. And she sees what she thinks is the human form of, uh, of a man. And he lays down on the stone slab and falls asleep. So she doesn't question this. They don't talk about it. But time goes on. And eventually he notices that she's sad. And he says, what is it making you so sad? And she says, well, I really miss my family. So he offers her the opportunity to go home. But he says, you can do this on one condition. You have to promise me that you will not speak alone to your mother. And so she promises because he says, if you do this, it will bring sadness on us both. Well, she gets home and sure enough, the whole time that she's there, her mother is trying to get her to tell, tell me what's going on, tell me what's going on. And she says, there's nothing I can tell you that I can't share while everyone else is here. But after a week of this goes by, she gives in, her mother prevails upon her and she's able to, she goes alone with her mother and explains what happens every night, how the bear comes into her room and her mother says, oh, he's probably an ogre and you might be in grave danger. So here, take this candle. And when you go back, the next time that happens, light the candle and go and see. Well, so of course, when she gets back, the bear asks her, did everything go as I said it would? And she said, yes, it did. And he said, well, then if you did what I asked you not to do, you will have brought great sadness to us both. So the way the question is asked, she doesn't really have to lie about it, but sure enough, that night he comes into the room sheds his bare skin, goes asleep on the stone slab, and she lights her mother's candle and walking over, she sees a very beautiful and very caring man who she's had this relationship with all this time, but in the form of a bear. And she's so overwhelmed, she wants to lean over and kiss him. But as she leans over, the wax drops off of, his, uh, off of the candle onto his shirt and he's burned and he wakes up and he says, that's it, now I have to leave and I can't tell you how to get to where I'm going, but I now have to marry the princess with the nose that's three L's long. She's the daughter of the ogress. And the, the, the maiden says, please can't you tell me where you'll be? And he says, all I can tell you is that it's a castle that's east of the sun and west of the moon. So what is happening in each one of these tales is that there is this experience of how in the first one, it is that we must name the elemental forces that we are engaged with and not just use them and extract from them the riches that we can garner by managing earth resources. And in the tale of Rupitzal, it's recognizing that we have to establish or exercise human ingenuity to kind of break the spell of enchantment that comes from uh, being captured by the elemental world. And then here in East of the Sun and West of the Moon, it ends up that the timing is very important because she does eventually make her way to this castle, um, but she gets there just before the, the prince is about to marry the ogress and they have to mastermind a way to break that spell. So built into the wisdom of each one of these fairy tales and in all true fairy tales is kind of this way that the human being can work harmoniously with the natural environment and kind of nourish it. And it might seem odd to imagine this, but in addition to our own delight and gratification and satisfaction when we're reading tales, we have to imagine 
that the elemental beings also are amused by stories about themselves. This is some of the lore that's handed down to us from, you could call it old wives' tales or the wisdom that comes out of ancient ages that when we speak a tale, when we tell a tale and, and bring to it uh, the liveliness and the color, that this really nourishes the elemental kingdom and gives them um, a sense of, I don't wanna say a sense of hope, but a sense of joy and delight because they imitate us. And when we are walking around beset with great challenge and with a severe experience and, and worry about what's coming toward us from the future, then that's what the elemental kingdom shows us. And so we have this opportunity, particularly around the time of new moon, to lay into the experience something that has a happily ever after in it. And so that's kind of what this, my, my whole pitch is about tonight, is that telling fairy tales is really, really important. And you'll notice at the each one, end of each one of these tales with Rumpelstiltskin, when she says his name, he stamps his foot on the ground and he has, in, in this version that I've put up here, it's just that he has to use both of his hands to pull himself out. But in another version that I have, he actually, when he stamps so hard on the ground, his foot sinks down deeply and then he pulls on the other one and tears himself in half and he disappears. In Rupitzal, he gets so angry that the princess gets away from him, but he also makes his magic palace and everything just disappear into nothingness and he's gone. And then in East of the Sun and West of the Moon, when they're able to break the spell of the ogress, she flies into such a rage that she immediately disappears. So if we relate these elemental forces to what's coming at us from nature, we can see that at least the wisdom that's coming from the fairy tale is that by showing a commitment and showing care and kindness and a sense of cleverness and timing that we can kind of break the spell uh, and and actually work a greater harmony but there's there's always a mystery about what has to happen the human being can't just say okay i'm going to do it this way um, in each story it's as though these elemental beings are adversarial forces but really they're there to help us and we have to that we're required to know the name of the force that we're working with. We also have to overcome its unbridled nature through ingenuity. Um, and when these things are happening at the right time, so if they're timed toward the moon, they're timed toward the meteor shower, they're timed toward sunrise, sometime in the cycle of the year or even in the experience of the day where there's an opening, then we can break the spell of enchantment. But all of these things only happen on one condition. And this prevails through all fairy tales and is something that's very much needed in our culture now, I would say always in super abundance, and that condition is love. And so in each once upon a time, there's a happily ever after, providing the human being exhibits a greater love for something other than one's own benefit, but also for oneself, for one's relationships, and for the natural world around us. All right, so now to bring this into what's happening <clears throat> right now. So right now we have had just this morning at 7.01 in the Eastern time zone, the moon came to new phase. So this is a drawing that was made by Leonardo da Vinci during the Renaissance. And sometimes the moon when it's at its first crescent is referred to as the da Vinci moon because you can see the, the sun illuminated part of the moon and then it looks like it has the unilluminated part of the moon as a, um, as a disc or as a host kind of sitting in this chalice of the moon. But what comes out of the mystery wisdom and what I imagine it's possible that Leonardo da Vinci was drawing here is that what, the, what was formerly believed is that when we can see that part of the moon that's not illuminated by the sun, 
we're actually seeing the part of the moon that's being spiritualized by the sun. So there's the part that's being illuminated by the light of the sun and the part of the moon that's being spiritualized by the energy of the sun. And so the imagination is that the human being is the same way. There is that part of our nature that is, you could say, awake and illumined by the sun. And then there is that part within us that we have to recognize our own inner spiritual nature and that sometimes can appear dark to us, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere when we come to the time of equinox. So the equinox is going to happen on Tuesday next week. And at that time, the sun goes below the celestial equator and the outer light of the sun wanes. And now we will have greater darkness and also more moonlight from autumn equinox until spring equinox. And so during this time, it was always believed that the human being is like that unilluminated part of the moon when there's still this kind of light of the sun that's lingering but we are now in, cast into that space where there would be inner darkness unless we were to recognize the spiritual force of the sun that we cultivate within ourselves. So the moon that was new today is first going to become visible probably tomorrow evening and definitely by Saturday if you have the right viewing conditions and you have a good view looking west on the horizon. So it's really fun to see the moon as early as you can because it's it's just astonishing how beautiful it is. And then to look for the unillumined part of it, because sometimes you can really see the outline of it very well. Oftentimes these days in the 21st century, that part will be, uh, it will be described that we can see that because of something called earth shine. So as though it's the reflection of other celestial light shining on the earth, reflecting off the earth onto the moon. I like to imagine it as this, the, the spiritualized sun, allowing us to see that kind of, it's not really dormant, but that, that part of the moon or that part of our own nature that we must illuminate. So this moon, that crescent phase, as I said, it, it reveals both its sun-illumined and its unillumined part, and this is where the mystery is. And you could imagine that in the ancient Egyptian culture, when they showed this, this being of the divine feminine whose crown of stars was removed and, and placed with these horns, that the horns are like the crescent moon, and it's possible that that sun disk was actually the, sun, the unillumined part of the moon that was nonetheless being um, infused with the spiritualized sun. And then when this moon comes to gibbous phase, it's going to pass by Saturn and Jupiter. That will be on the 24th and the 25th. And then it's going to come full on October 1st, and that will be our harvest moon. And that moon will appear in the vicinity of the stars of Pisces. This is speaking in the sidereal zodiac. If you looked at a tropical zodiac, it would say that that moon is going to be full in Aries. And so we don't really see the stars around the moon so well when it's full because it's the brightest thing in the sky. Um, nonetheless, it's interesting about where that moon is going to be full because it's exactly opposite where next year's vernal full moon will occur. So this is the first full moon after the autumn equinox this year, and it's exactly opposite where the first full moon after the spring equinox will occur um, in March of 2021. And that moon is the one that is used to determine um, the festival dates of the Passover, Easter, um, so these are very significant uh, lunar cycles. And the imagination that I have is that if we think about this moon at its crescent phase right now, when it appears to us as this kind of chalice in the sky that's holding the unillumined part of itself, that now is the time when we have something to offer into that moon. And the reason it's important right now, particularly in a year 
when the harvest moon is after equinox. So let me just pause there for a moment. Harvest moon is the full moon that's closest to the equinox. So sometimes it happens before equinox and it will be in September. Sometimes like this year, it happens after equinox and it can be later in September or into the beginning of October. Now, if you think about what's going on at equinox, the sun in the Northern hemisphere, it's coming to the celestial equator around the world, but for us in the Northern hemisphere, it's going below the equator and we have greater darkness. Now, if the moon comes full before the sun goes below the celestial equator, it's still carrying the light of the sun as though it's above, like this risen sun. But when this moon comes full after the sun has stepped below the celestial equator, the energy and the force of it changes. And so the imagination I have is that we become more responsible as human beings. We're not getting the light from the sun. We have to illuminate it out of our own inner light. But how do you do that? So part of the way that I imagine we do that as a star lore historian is that we tell story, we, um, we paint, we sing, we dance, we have artistic expression timed to the moon in, and with an intention that says, this is how I as a human being am going to inform the elemental world and the spiritual world about what I have to offer. Because it seems very much like the answer needs to come from us. And so, we can look in the ancient cultures, we can look even in more recent centuries and see that the celebrations, the ceremonies were timed to what was going on in the celestial environment, particularly with the moon. So when the harvest moon, again, when it's, when it's after equinox, it seems as though we have, to realize, we have to rely more on ourselves to bring kind of the, the substance. So this moon is going to make a very interesting journey um, it's going to, as I said, it's going to pass by Saturn and Jupiter, but then when it gets to full phase on October 1st, at the same time, the planet Venus, which is our morning star right now, is going to become very close to the star Regulus, which is at the heart of the lion. So this is regarded as the heart star, and Venus is goddess of love and beauty. So what happens when the moon is full? When the sun is rising in the east, then we'll be seeing that full moon setting in the west. That will be at dawn. But if we're looking at sunset time, when the sun is setting in the west, then that full moon is rising in the east. But if you want to see Venus and, and Regulus, then you got to go out at sunrise. So you're going to see the full moon kind of going over the horizon in the west, and you'll see Venus and Regulus in the morning sky just before the dawn. And what I imagine the gest this gesture is, it's as though we have an opportunity when we first begin to see the moon as a crescent. So tomorrow, beginning tomorrow night and all the way through the first, the crescent phase that takes us from new moon to first quarter. So the dates of that are going to be from uh, today until the 23rd. So just the day after equinox. I would imagine that as the time where we can kind of lay something into that chalice of the moon that we would offer. And it's some expression of the heart, some, something that comes out of a striving for a higher, greater good truth, goodness, beauty, the things that we long for in our culture, in our communities, in the natural world. These are the things that we could be imagine that we're laying into the lap of the moon as the sun is setting at the end of each day and that moon begins to appear. And then I imagine when we get to the, from first quarter to the uh, full phase, which is when the moon is at its gibbous, it's as though now the lunar forces start to work with what we've kind of put into that chalice. 
And so gibbous moon seems to be really related to more the dream body in the human being. So I imagine this is kind of like, if you imagine that that chalice of the moon is uh, something that you're going to, you're put, putting ingredients in because you're going to make something sacred that then at first quarter, you now step back and let the flavors marry with one another so that when you come to full phase, there is this full expression, not only of what you offered, but what the response is that's coming from the celestial world. So this is just an imagination about a way to think about the moon right now. And then we get to full moon on the 1st of October, and then we're still in gibbous phase from full moon back to last quarter, and that will be happening from um, October 1st until October 9th. And again, this is kind of like getting the response back from the, I, I mean, I'm, I'm gonna just say that it's the elemental kingdom that was described in former times at the full moon, the elemental beings get very, very active. They frolic in the moonlight. And so it's as though we want to come toward it with harmony. And at this time of the crescent from new moon to first quarter, storytelling to the elemental kingdom is a wonderful thing to do. It's a wonderful way to put something into that chalice of the moon and then kind of offer it up for full moon and then dream into the response that's coming back. And then when we get to the waning crescent phase, starting on October 9th until the 16th, when the moon will be new again, what's going to happen is the moon is going to wane as a crescent through the morning sky. And it's a really, really beautiful phenomena that the moon will only ever pass by the planet Venus when it's a crescent. And so it's as though Venus then, when the moon wanes by Venus in the morning sky in this cycle, it's like the goddess of love and beauty can fructify what we have been offering into this. So I think about like the harvest moon and what are we harvesting out of 2020? We really have to be mindful about what is our thoughts about the experiences that we've been having in the cycle of this year. And if there's a, a lot of fear or there's a lot of sadness or there's a lot of deep concern that maybe those things need to be infused, even if just for a moment, with joy and with goodness and with um, a sense that something good can actually emerge from this if we nourish ourselves and nourish our relationship to the elemental world and time it to what's going on with the moon and watch the gesture that it makes in its different phases with the planets and with the stars. So the moon, when it's waning, is going to, um, in about a month from now, will be going right past Venus in the morning sky. It will have moved on from Regulus, Venus will have by that time. But on October 13th, when the moon is right next to Venus in the morning sky, the planet Mars is going to come to opposition with the sun. And so Mars will be opposite on the opposite side of the sky from Venus. And sometimes astrologers will interpret that as a time when, you know, oh, love is going to be challenged. But what the ancients believed was that when Venus and Mars are opposite one another in the sky, then the opportunity for expressing love or communicating is actually strengthened. And so I think about this in relationship to our being at this point where we're approaching the equinox. We've just had the last new moon of the summer. Equinox will occur. We get harvest moon. Venus will be quite close to Regulus, the heart star at that time. And then when the moon moves past Venus, Venus will be standing opposite Mars. So this is a really beautiful speaking of the moon coming to the, the sun coming to the place of balance while the moon is coming to its harvest but I really believe that we have something to offer and it's up to us now. We really have to bring into the, our experience the things that we want to build into our futures. 
Okay, so this map that I have here, this picture comes from the Abrams Planetarium Sky Calendar, which is at Michigan State University. It's an excellent resource for learning about the night sky. I'm really fond of saying that I prefer maps to apps because the apps on the phone are really, really wonderful, but it's really challenging if you go into a dark sky environment and have to pull out a phone to look at it to figure out what you're looking at in the sky. It's really a lot better to get a map in your hands and look at it before you go into the night sky environment so that you can just be there having an experience of what that's all about. So that's my proselytizing for the moment. But I just wanted to also um, to kind of bring us to a close um, and out of this idea of storytelling and fairy tales with the mindset that we are actually informing the natural environment when we tell stories that for every once upon a time, there's a place that's far, far away that lives deep in every human heart. And when we begin to tell the story of that place, then the elementals draw near to listen. And this causes the stars to shine. And this is one of the ways that we speak to the stars. And so now I'm going to invite all of you to recite with me the very last line of this presentation. Um, you don't have to unmute yourselves, but it's a line that we should all know very, very well. And when you see it flash across the screen, let's just all say it loud and proud like we mean it. And they all lived happily ever after. This is the highest wisdom that comes to us from the ancient ages, comes out of all of the fairy tales. And when we live in harmonious, right relationship with the natural environment, with one another, we honor our commitments, even if we've broken them the first time around, we can make our way through to a happily ever after. And storytelling by the light of the moon with the elemental beings in mind is a wonderful, wonderful way to do that. And I'm hoping that it will assuage if not the discomfort we're having at this time, then maybe uh, also some of the forces that are seem to be operating in a very chaotic way right now. Okay, and this is just the contact slide. If you want more information about me or from me, I'm, my website is storytellersnightsky.com. You can find me on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. I do a weekly radio program that's uh, broadcast also as a podcast on Anchor FM where I tell the stories of the sky for the week. Um, and I think that's what I've got. Feels like it was a lot of content and I went pretty fast. I hope it hung together for everybody. I'm gonna stop my screen share so that uh, we can, oh, where did it go? Okay. Thank you so much, Mary. That there we are, I'm, I'm back. I'm hoping that there was some questions or if anybody has a reflection they'd like to share or, Sometimes you gotta take a deep breath after all that kind of content, but I'm happy to um, to hear anybody's responses or have, if you have any questions. Thanks, Mary. Nice to see you and, and hear you. I'll, Thank I'll you. be getting back to you. Thank soon. you. I'd like to um, ask anybody who wants to ask questions, you're more than welcome to. Chat might be... Uh, Good way to do that as well. We're getting lots of um, thank yous and kudos on here, Mary. Okay, thank you. That's good to see. Yeah, hopefully. So it wasn't um, maybe wasn't too specific about how to do ceremony with this particular moon, but I would imagine it in four different stages. So the beginning stage is this first quarter where the moon is a crescent, and it's as though it's open. There's something that we can place into it. 
hopefully we'll be able to see the um, unillumined part of the moon and imagine that that's the ground that we have to till during this time. And then when it gets to gibbous phase to really be paying attention to the dreams, um, looks like there's a question. But then also at full phase, this is when we're, we're going to harvest what 2020 is about. We're bringing in the harvest and it's not just the fruits and the vegetables out in the field. It can be that also, but it's in our own feeling life and, and a reflection about what it is that we've carried with us through this year that we really want to cultivate for going forward. And then the moon will at gibbous phase when it's waning, it will, um, again, I, I think that this is a really important dream time because that moon rises after midnight when we ideally were asleep. So that's the dream moon. And then when we get to last quarter and the moon is a waning crescent, it's going to go by Venus, who's goddess of love and beauty that looks into the heart of the human being to see what can be, um, what's there to nourish it. So we need to carry that very, very strong in the heart. Christian, I have a question. Yes. Or maybe... An uh, elaboration. I really enjoyed what you said about when the when the balance of the moon is illuminated um, as an internal light, as opposed to you know another physical reflection. Um, Maybe she has blonde hair and she's got. I've, I'm not hearing you, Cynthia. You went away. Muted. I can mean. I thought a lot about the idea of that we are like. Like the Earth's like a cool star, and like we're like cooler, slower, smaller stars. And I've been um, doing a lot of reading about the holobiont and all sort of the nested levels of our our biology and everything like that. This seems like kind of a nesting of of illumination and darkness. Do you have any? Yeah, else to add? yeah, and that's something that really we need to deal with. Is that how like Goethe and his theory of color gives this description that it's this struggle between light and dark and that color emerges from that. And so it's not about just getting rid of darkness. I, you know, and we should talk about that because there's so much about what we're doing, which is trying to raise awareness about light pollution and how we're cut off from this natural light that comes toward us at night from the stars. And when you think about a star, it's shining toward us, but it's not diminishing the dark. There's a sacredness about the dark that the star does not diminish. And how can we do that? How do we do that so that we can kind of pierce through? And what I find in my work and research is that these ideas are really supported when I can read a fairy tale, not only be, not because I'm getting a direct answer, but it nourishes something in me that says, you know what, I might be starting out like that hero. I've got these great intentions and I do repeatedly do stupid things over and over and over again. It's like, when am I going to figure this out? Nonetheless, in every fairy tale, right when you're at that critical moment, like you're gonna be hung tomorrow morning if you don't move that mountain. Like, how am I gonna move the mountain? It's not possible, but no matter what, some virtue comes to play, something that you have exhibited along the way that says, you know what, human being, you aren't all bad. Don't judge yourself that way because this virtue that you exhibited, the, the, the elemental world has taken it and multiplied it, and it's now going to save your life. And guess what? You get to live happily ever after. So fairy tales really nourish that sense in us, particularly when things look like they're really hard and how are we ever possibly going to make it through this one of the ways to make it through is to read a boatload of fairy tales 
and to start listening to the environment. Not that I'm not assuming that nobody's listening to their environment, but hopefully we're all reading fairy tales and reciting poetry and watching the moon and, and getting it that there's a rhythm. Oh, I dream with that moon and I, and I have something to offer that moon and it's going to give something back to me if I listen in the right way. So let's see. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, I had something, but I just lost it again. So that was, that was amazing. Whew. Yeah. So I'm, I'm reading Jim's comment. Of course, Venus and the moon are also feminine to us. So perhaps the renewal of the even stronger feminine will emerge before November. I have to agree with you, Jim, um, that both Venus and the moon represent this feminine quality. And there is a very strong sense of an emergence of the feminine right now. And I think that there's this lovely relationship between them where the moon will never outshine Venus. It will never be next to Venus when it's at gibbous phase. It will never be next to Venus when it's full. It will only come by Venus when it's in this crescent phase. And it's as though the moon is saying to Venus, I know what your work is about weaving substance out of what lives in the heart of the human being. And I'm going to hold that space for you. And so this holding gesture is very much the gesture of the feminine, the divine feminine, Virgo, which is where we are right now. The sun is just moving from Virgo into, um, into Libra. And so Virgo is this pregnant virgin. We celebrate the harvest at this time with this divine feminine being that gives us an embrace. And it's really wonderful in the region of Virgo, the brightest star there is the star Spica. And Spica has already said, it's already uh, below the horizon, with the sun, but it's oftentimes described as a lonely star because there are no other really bright stars around it. But this is kind of a mystery because Virgo is actually the star that is the most held by the divine spiritual world, you could say. And so it's like right now we have to find that the light of Spica within ourselves. Uh, so let's see, Cynthia, it reminds me of temporarily of force compared to the infinity of power. You'll have to interpret that for me, Cynthia. <laughs> oh, um, I guess I'm speaking to the idea of uh, when we sort of like the way things are, you talked a lot about natural rhythms and the elements and the balances and all those kinds of yeah. things. And that the world is, is the way that it is and it's got this permanence. And when, when humans or other things, I think humans are really good at, at um, uh, bringing up uh, things that have a lot more to do with the force, that things kind of working against elements than working with them. And when you're working against the elements, it's always temporary. It can never be sustained. But there is yeah. this, this um, infinity of, of power that, that exists that's really a different flavor. Yeah, and also I think um, it's like finding the rhythm, a rhythmic relationship with it. Rudolf Steiner says rhythm replaces strength. So when we find a harmonious rhythm and when we can look at indigenous cultures and ancient cultures and see that they, they not only farmed the land or migrated through the seasons or did the hunting at a certain season, but the practice of the ceremony aligned to the celestial gesture was really, really important. And this isn't about um, an institutionalized religion. It's more about having this sense of the sacred. We are on a, the, the earth is a, a living being and we need to live in harmony with it. And we've got to find that harmonious balance again, because seem, things 
seem to be out of balance. It's like the giants are among us and they have ravenous appetites and they're marching through and what do we have to offer them that will slake their thirst and allay their hunger and bring coolness to the warmth that's heating up. I mean, we have this passionate intensity and this passionate deba debate and divisiveness that's going on and, and, and things are, are, it's like it's catching fire. And I don't, again, I want to be very cautious and very mindful about this. That there are people are suffering a great deal about what's happening um, very personally in the world and losing homes and losing lives. And we have an opportunity, especially those of us that live in environments where we can see the natural world. We aren't dealing with light pollution in the same ways that is happening in our urban environments. We have a responsibility to cultivate that relationship to starry worlds for the earth. Because it's not only that the human beings can't see the stars when we're in light polluted environments, but that starlight is not getting to the earth body. And the earth body needs the starlight. I mean, it's just, it, it, it might sound like a wild idea, but I think it's very true. The earth hungers for its own relationship, just like we hunger for relationship with one another, which we've been experiencing pretty acutely during quarantine. I mean, human relationship is really important and the earth's relationship to its environment is as important. Okay, I feel like I'm getting pretty preachy, but <laughs> it's really important. We're coming to harvest. <laughs> I think that uh, gives us all a really important and very maybe fresh framework for how to think about our place right now and especially in 2020. Yeah. And uh, just is such a great framing for our month-long events and what we can create between now and October 1st and what we can hope to marinate and have come back to us. Yeah, and at least if we can just, at least for a week, just say, I'm just going to put like good, good thoughts, healing thoughts, happily ever after into that chalice of the moon. Yeah. And then see what comes. It's, I, I think we owe it to ourselves. We owe it to one another to really do that. Absolutely. Well, Mary, thank you so much. This thank was you. really beautiful. And that is reflected in the comments we're getting um, from all of our participants. Yeah. Thank, thank you, you everyone for being here. And remember, they all, we all will live happily ever after. <laughs> Something we can put all of our trust in. I love that. Yeah. And thank you so much to our sponsor, Robbie Lapp. Yes. Thank you, Robbie. Thank you so, so much. Mm -hmm. May your harvest be bountiful. Thank you, Mary. Thanks, Cindy. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Okay. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Good night. Sweet dreams. I'll be thinking of you all when I look at the moon tomorrow. <laughs> thank you and blessings. Good thank night. you.